All right. Good evening. Appreciate you being here. Uh, just, I don't normally spend much time on Wednesday nights talking about Sundays, but I've had several of you ask, so just, um, just for your information, um, I've had several people ask about attendance on Easter. Um, our worship attendance last Sunday was 1,380 people. So, and I, I encouraged the staff on Tuesday by reminding them that even with a new building on the way, uh, we get to do at least one more Easter without any more space. <laughs> so, uh, so I think the runway to next Easter has already begun in the planning process. But um, it was a great day, and, uh, and we've already seen some great results come out of it. One of the things about modern Western Christianity versus biblical Christianity is that the modern version of our faith is captivated by a fascination with strong starts. Um, when some celebrity or somebody that has some name recognition, when they declare their faith, uh, man, we trumpet that, we, we put them on display, we immediately begin to parade them around to conferences and, and Christian events and ask them to give their testimony. Um, more often than not, that comes back to bite us. Uh, you may remember a few years ago that there was some fanfare as Jane Fonda confessed faith in Jesus Christ, spoke at several places, uh, several large churches, uh, kind of went on the, the speaking circuit, only a few years later for her to back away from the faith and recant and say that, um, that she had explored it and, and was no longer interested. Um, Anne Rice is another example. Uh, she was a best-selling author uh, her most famous series is probably the one called The Vampire Chronicles, uh, New York Times bestsellers, one right after another. Um, she confessed faith. Um, she had grown up Catholic, and so she returned to the Catholic faith and, and, uh, and really threw herself into it. In fact, even wrote a, a trilogy of novels about the life of Jesus and then backed away. And her, her response was... Um, I'm fond of Jesus, but I'm not wild about Christians. Well, I mean, I get that sometimes on Monday morning. <laughs> but the bottom line is that the bride of Christ goes along with the groom. It's a package deal. And so uh, there's really no place for, for someone to say, you know, I'm, I'm fond of Jesus, but, but I don't want the church. That's, that's not real faith. But we, we take those, those people and we put them on display because we think somehow that that gives credibility to the gospel. That, that if, we could, if we could show the world that the cool kids believe what we believe, that somehow uh, the whole world would be drawn. Not understanding that what draws people is not uh, the word of famous people. It is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The, new, the, the, the modern version of Christianity is fascinated by, 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 by popular starts, beginnings. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, never seems to pay too much attention to how we start. It always emphasizes how we finish. We've been in a series of lessons on Wednesday nights from the life of Hezekiah, and I want to finish that story tonight. This will be the last one in this series, and, and I don't want this to be overly, um, I mean, I don't want this to be confession hour, but, but of the many characters in the Bible that I have a particular affinity for, um, one of the characters that I identify with is Hezekiah. Now, not because I want to be king. I mean, in fact, you'll, you'll notice that this teaching series that we've had all along, I entitled it Leading Like a King. It's not that I think there are lessons from Hezekiah that teach us how to be a king, but I do think that he gives us lessons about how to be leaders in whatever our sphere of influence is. 
whether you pastor a large church, a small church, whether you teach a Sunday school class, or whether you just influence your neighbors on your street. There are principles of leadership that we can draw from the Word of God. I mean, the Bible is frankly the best leadership manual that's ever been written. All those people that have made a fortune writing leadership books and giving conferences, they stole it all from the Bible. Okay? Now, the reason I identify with, with Hezekiah so much is not really all of, the, uh, all of the events that we've seen in his life. It's really this lesson tonight. I've entitled, I've entitled this lesson, uh, The Assessment, The Final Assessment of a King. One of the things that the Old Testament does with all the kings is at the end of their life, it gives a summary. Some of them are incredibly brief. They'll say something like, um, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he was laid to rest with his fathers. And it's sort of a dismissive kind of comment. God didn't really get much from this one. Others have a more extensive summary of, of, their, of their life and their work. And Hezekiah is one of those. Now, what's fascinating about Hezekiah is that Jewish tradition tells us that he was buried uh, next to David and Solomon. Now, whether that's actual historical fact, we'll never know. But, but it was a Jewish way of saying that, that when Hezekiah went to be among his fathers, he was one of the good ones. And yet, part of the reason I identify with Hezekiah so much is because I feel like that Hezekiah didn't finish as strongly as he started. And I think that, fear's not the right word, but that, um, that idea that it's, that it's easy to, um, to walk with God and then at the end, sort of somewhere along the way, put things on cruise control. And leadership, in a sense, um, is compromised because you don't run the race all the way to the finish line. And I think that's what we have in the life of Hezekiah as we look at, at his final summary. And I think the reason I identify with him is because for all of his, you know, Hezekiah was used by the Lord. He, he had a long list of accomplishments. Uh, like I said, tradition associates him with David and Solomon. In fact, he's referred to in Jewish literature as the second Solomon. Uh, a man of wisdom, a man of leadership, a man uh, who knew how to lead. And yet we come to, to these closing verses, and it was like his challenges were mostly behind him. Now, they were incredible challenges. Remember what we've seen in the life of Hezekiah. Day one, he orders all of the high places to be torn down. He begins to attack the popular uh, heresy that had taken hold in the land of worshiping the gods of the peoples that, that Judah had never quite uh, eliminated from the promised land. You remember God, God said, don't, don't show any mercy. You have to clean the promised land. You have to eliminate the pagans, the idolaters. They have to be removed. It's for the protection of the, of the drama of redemption. And yet they didn't do that. I mean, when we talk about Israel especially, even the tribe of Dan, Dan was assigned uh, a particular location, and they could, never, they could never defeat the people that were in their space. So a few of them settled in their assigned space, and the rest of them just went up and found some unused territory and lived there. I mean, it was a, it was a instead of relying on God, it was a concession that, well, this is too hard. We'll just go somewhere else. Well, Hezekiah's life, he was the king who faced the intimidation of the, the Assyrian army, the representatives of King Sennacherib. Uh, he rallied his own troops with that incredible statement that went against all evidence that, that they have an army of maybe 200,000 people, but, but, but we have more than that because God is on our side. And it said the people took his words to heart, and they were, they were encouraged, they were, em, they were emboldened by those words. 
Well, then the angel sent by God comes and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are, are killed in one night and and the king takes the remnants of his army and tucks his tail between his legs and they, they, they make their way back to Assyria. Uh, following a prophecy 20 years later, Sennacherib is assassinated by his own sons, fulfilling the word of the Lord about what would happen to this man who dared to challenge with blasphemy the sovereign God of the whole earth. I mean, Hezekiah's had an incredible life. He's accomplished incredible things. Now, what I, what I identify with him is, and, and I'm not putting what my life, I don't, I don't, I really don't like these kinds of personal illustrations, but, but there is a sense in which God has blessed me to see success in a number of places that I've been called to serve in my lifetime. And yet, while I still have a significant period of time, I believe, uh, still to do ministry, I'm not looking at retirement, I do know that it's dangerous when you're still supposed to be in the game, but you've had some, some accomplishments, you've had some, some laurel leaves behind you. The temptation to say, Okay, I can, I can put it on autopilot now. I can cruise because I'm just that good. That's the danger. And I think that any leader, whether you're talking about a pastor or, or a politician or, uh, or anybody with any kind of leadership responsibility, it's always a temptation to slip into the misunderstanding that you're just good enough to do it. Well, open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20. You might want to put your finger in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 because we're going to, these are parallel accounts of the same events, but they give us different details. So we're going to go back and forth uh, between these two chapters, 2 Kings chapter 20 and 2 Chronicles chapter 32. The question that I wanted to ask tonight is, do believers, and particularly leaders, do we succeed best when we're comfortable or when we're under pressure? And if the answer is we work best when we're under pressure, what does that mean for Evergreen? I mean, what does that mean when we have the highest attendance we've ever had as a church last Sunday? Is it time to say, wow, we figured it out? I spent some time this week thinking about that, 1,380 people on Easter Sunday, and my mind kept being drawn back to 28 people in a living room 22 years ago. But see, here's what the Spirit keeps, keeps reminding me of. We didn't go from 28 to 1,380 because I figured out how to do church. It's God. And if God doesn't get the credit for what God does, there's a real good chance he won't do it. Not because he's petty, but because he understands better than we do that it is not to our benefit to take credit as though we are responsible for the spiritual successes that we've seen happen in the course of our lifetime. 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Remember, we've, the, the Assyrian army has, has gone back. This is, this is now um, after that, but, um, but clearly not yet after the 20 years uh, that Sennacherib is assassinated. He's still, Assyria is still the superpower. Sennacherib is still on the throne. There's still a threat on the horizon, okay? Chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Set your house in order, for you are going to die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Please, Lord, just remember how I have walked before you wholeheartedly and in truth and have done what is good in your sight. 
And Hezekiah wept profusely. And even before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I am going to heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life, and I will save you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will protect this city for my sake. Now, I've started with the first point on your outline that you see there. I've called it the downside of blessing. But it begins with the fact that Hezekiah here is providentially honored. Okay? Uh, it says in those days, this is not, um, this is not a rhetorical uh, phrase that just means, you know, and sometime afterward. It connects these events to the events that have just gone before them. So Sennacherib has just left um, a, a brief time before this, and there are a lot of things that Hezekiah can now turn his attention to. He's not finished. He knows he's not finished, but he falls ill, and, and the prophet comes and announces that he's going to die. So get your house in order. Make a will. Leave final instructions. Choose a successor. For Hezekiah, the announcement of his death is, in a sense, a statement of the end of his usefulness to God. In other words, you've done what, what you were created and, and put in place to do, and now that's finished, and, uh, and, and get ready to, to go. And so he comes before God in prayer. Now that, that is to his credit. Hezekiah approaches the crisis of his personal health the same way he approached every crisis that we've seen in his story before now. He goes to God. Um, now, we saw him go to God through the prophet Isaiah at one point, but he's always looking for an authoritative word from God to speak to his situation. And so it says he turned his face to the wall. That just means that that this was, him, this was a conversation between Hezekiah and God. Okay, nobody else is in on this. He turns his face to the wall. This is just uh, a private uh, conversation. And this was his prayer. Please, Lord, just remember how I have walked before you wholeheartedly and in truth and have done what is good in your sight. And then it says he wept profusely. Now, I read a couple of commentators this week who make the statement that, um, that Hezekiah prays a pretty um, self-centered prayer here. Um, almost as if he's, uh, the, the writer suggests that it's almost as if Hezekiah is, is telling God, you know, you're, you're lucky to have me on your team. You can't afford for me to die right now. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm an important player. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the star players on the team. I don't think that's what's happening here at all, okay? First of all, um, if, that was, if that was the gist of Hezekiah's prayer, I think God's response would have been very different. He, what he's doing here is he's doing exactly the same thing that David did in a number of the Psalms. Uh, he's doing exactly the same thing that Job did in a number of places in the book of Job. It, it, we've been taught, because we live in a nice culture, we've been taught that pointing anything out about yourself is self-centered. I mean, if you, if, you, if you highlight anything that you've done, people look at you sideways like, well, aren't you the cat's meow? And yet, in Hebrew culture, whether it's David in the Psalms or Job in, in that book or, or Hezekiah here, what they're doing is they're having a conversation with an infallible judge, okay? You don't lie to the judge. You don't pull the wool over the judge's eyes when you know by definition that the judge knows every aspect of the situation. What they're doing is not sort of whining, why should I have to die? I'm so good. I've done so many things. What he's doing here is he's giving an honest assessment of his faithful walk with God up to this point. 
And, and really the question here is, Lord, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. <laughs> I mean, that's the definition of being God. But, but this is the life that I've lived. I've done good in your sight. Now, he's not convincing God. In fact, you wouldn't say that to God unless you had an absolute confidence that what you were speaking was actual truth. He doesn't understand what's happening. Now, this passage has a couple of traps for us because, because God is going to relent, if you will. But that language is, is odd language to use about God. What we need to understand about God, sometimes the Bible says that God relents. Sometimes the Bible says God repents. But we have to understand that, that we are trying to communicate what we see about God, and, and we're trying to understand what we see, but we can only describe it in the language that, that we can make use of. And so when God announces something, and then uh, sometimes his, his announcement is an invitation for our participation. That's what happens here. Here's the announcement. Hezekiah, don't presume that you're going to get better. God is, I think, inviting Hezekiah uh, into another spiritual battle just to see what he has. Hezekiah makes the case. He's not trying to convince God. He's just stating the facts of the matter. And he weeps profusely. That's, that's the English translation here. The language suggests repentance. Now, what was he repenting from? Well, we don't know exactly. That's not made clear in the passage. But it's enough to say that he is having what in the New Testament we would call a come-to-Jesus moment, where he is evaluating his life. He's measuring the life that he lived by the, the, the expectation and the call that God has given to him. And in that measurement... What he says is, though, he, 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 he tells us those things that, that honor God, the ways that he lived up to, the calling that he had. But I suspect that the weeping profusely, remember he's turned his face to the wall. This is a private conversation. I think the weeping profusely is where Hezekiah, doing that review of his life, that inventory, of his days, that's where he presented himself before the Lord, not saying, I'm so good, you should give me special consideration. He's saying, this is the good of it, and here's the bad of it. And the shortcomings and the, the, the things that, that, that he's fallen down on, looking back over the course of his life, he wept before the Lord. I think it's repentance. Now, again, think about this. He's not bargaining with God for more life. He's measuring his life by the standard of the God that he serves. And he was brokenhearted over the places that he fell short. He was privileged to acknowledge the places where God had made use of him. And in that conversation with God. I, I can't give you an explanation of, of exactly what's happening in the mind of God. And any, any preacher that tells you he knows the mind of God in all of its detail is lying to you. But I do know this. Isaiah has come and made the announcement. It is an announcement that sort of pushes Hezekiah to this moment of, of reflection and contemplation. And before Isaiah can get out of the palace, God speaks to him and he says, go back. Tell Hezekiah that I've seen your tears, I've heard your prayer, and I'm going to heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. And I will save you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will protect this city for my own sake and for my servants, servant David's sake. Now, 
I want you to, I want you to pay attention to the, to the answer of prayer here. And this is all a part of what I mean when I say that Hezekiah was providentially honored. Not only was he honored because God said, okay, I'm going to heal you from a terminal illness, an illness that by all human, right, all human expectation was going to take his life. I'm going to heal you from a terminal illness, but I'm going to give you 15 more years. But that 15 more years is years of service to me. Why? Well, look at verse 6. He said, I'm going to add 15 years to life, and I will save you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. So, well, wait, didn't 185,000 soldiers die? Didn't the, didn't the king leave? Yeah, but, but he's not gone. I mean, the Assyrian Empire is still the big dog. They took, a, they took a blow, but that's still a threat. I wonder in Hezekiah's prayer if part of his, if part of his, his mindset was, Lord, uh, the job is not done yet. I mean, yeah, there's been a great battle that, that, that you won on behalf of your people, but, uh, but the threat is not gone. They need a king to lead them through what's, what's ahead. And God says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. And that's, that's kind of what we focus on because that's kind of the most dramatic part of this. But don't miss the rest of the answer to the prayer. I will save you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And get this. And I will protect this city of my, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. You want to know how to have answers, answered prayer? Pray for things that bring honor and glory to the name of God. Hezekiah's prayer, whatever personal benefit flowed out of God's response to that prayer, the motivation that God has is not that Hezekiah whined and, and sort of cried and twisted God's arm to do something. God says, you're still useful to me, and I'm going to accomplish something through you that is to protect my city, for my sake, and for the sake of my servant David. How many generations have passed? And God is still saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless Israel because David honored me. Folks, don't ever lose sight of the fact that if you, if you and I don't live to see the second coming, if we're, if we're in that group of those who... who um, who rise to meet him in the air, those that have the priority position when the time comes because we've already died. I want you to understand, your rewards in eternity, they don't stop when you die. Because if you've lived a godly life, your influence continues for generations. Did you pass the faith to your children? Did you influence your grandchildren? What happens when they become the men and women of the church in their generation and they have an influence for the kingdom that extends? See, those rewards that we, that we acquire are, are ticked off generation after generation because there's a direct line of influence. Listen, one of the coolest conversations you're ever going to have it's the person that approaches you in eternity and says, you don't know me. But I came to know Christ because of this person who told me about Jesus. And they learned it from this person. And they learned it from their dad. And their dad learned it because they worked with you. And you had an influence on his faith. Can you imagine four or five generations passing and somebody coming up to you and saying, I just want to thank you because I've seen the spiritual lineage that led to my introduction to Jesus and you're a part of it. Really, does that really happen, Pastor? Well, first chapter of Matthew, that's the physical lineage of Jesus goes from Abraham all the way through the Old Testament until it arrives at Mary, who gives birth to Jesus. If God keeps that kind of detail for physical genealogies, I promise you He keeps that kind of detail for spiritual genealogies. Okay? So, so here's what we have. Uh, for His sake, He's going to make use of, of Hezekiah. Now, if the story ended right there, be like, man, this was, 
a great finish to a great story. But while he was providentially honored, I think he became pathetically haughty. Look at where this takes us. Um, let me finish these verses and then we'll go to Second Chronicles. Um, Isaiah comes back and he tells the answer that God's going to answer his prayer. Then Isaiah said, take a cake of figs. And they took it and placed it on the inflamed spot and he recovered. Now Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will perform the word that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? When he, so Hezekiah said, it is easy for the shadow to decline 10 steps. What he's talking about is a shadow that would move with the course of the sun in a day. He says, it's easy for the shadow to decline 10 steps. No, have the shadow turn backward 10 steps. In fact, have the shadow go the opposite way that you would expect it to go with the traveling of the sun through the sky. Then Isaiah the prophet called out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back ten steps by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, that's, that's a miraculous moment. But understand that even here, we don't have Hezekiah um, asserting himself. God, God condescends to us in a lot of ways. Now, here's the thing. When he asks us to do something extraordinary, or when he plans to do something extraordinary, because of the weakness of who we are, God often condescends to give us um, reassurance. Uh, the classic example is Gideon. Gideon, you're going to be a mighty warrior someday. Who, me? Yeah, you're going to be a mighty warrior and, uh, and God has big plans for you. And Gideon says, well, um, is there any way we can, you know, really confirm that? I'd like, to have, uh, I'd like to have a little more confidence moving forward. And he says, well, yeah. I mean, so here, here's the fleece. Here's the, the dew. And so, so in, in Judges, Gideon lays out the, the test, and, and God miraculously responds to the test. And then Gideon says, um, could we, you know, reverse it, flip it, do it again a different way, just so I can be sure? Now, our temptation is to look at that and go, you know, when is God going to go, oh, forget it, I'll just get somebody else. God has this incredible heart to condescend to us because he knows us in our weakness but he also knows that as he deals with this in our weakness, it is because he is raising us to our strength. I mean, Gideon was a young man with no visible evidence of greatness at all. When he's introduced into the story, uh, he is anything but the picture of a, of a great warrior. And yet, when the angel of the Lord comes and calls his name, he addresses him as Gideon, mighty man of valor. I'm fascinated by that story because God sees us not as we are, but as he intends us to be. And part of living the life of faith is for us to quit looking at ourselves the way we are and quit being stuck in all of our shortcomings. When if we could begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, if we would begin to act like mighty warriors, who knows how things would be different. Well, so here... here um, Hezekiah is given the privilege. God condescends to reassure him. You say, well, why did he need to? Well, because coming back from a terminal disease, I mean, that's a fairly big deal. Fifteen more years of life, uh, a significant call. God allows uh, Hezekiah to, to be given that reassurance. I, I, I don't think that says much to us about Hezekiah. I think it says a lot to us about God and his patience with us. But now here, put your finger in, in chapter 20 of 2 Kings, and now go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Let's see. Let's start with um, verse 24. 
This is a parallel story. It says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. Okay? That one verse summarizes the 11 verses that we've just read in 2 Kings. Now, what Kings doesn't tell us is what the chronicler will tell us in verse 25. But Hezekiah did nothing in return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. All right. Here's where this story gets messy. He not only had a prayer answered, as he had had multiple prayers answered over the course of his years as king of Judah. The prayer for his healing was answered, as I said, actually before Isaiah even gets out of the building. But the supernatural healing of Hezekiah apparently became an occasion for pride. And this is where he made his mistake. He confused God's mercy for his privilege. Anytime we act like God needs us to do anything that he wants to accomplish, as though we're indispensable pieces in this, uh, in this process, um, we have overstepped our bounds. The chronicler doesn't pull any punches. There is a miraculous healing, but there's no account in Kings of anything that immediately happens. You would have expected somebody with Hezekiah's track record to have um, issued an announcement to call the people to worship. You would have expected some sort of acknowledgement uh, of, of this amazing thing. It would have been, see, part of the reason, remember what we've seen about in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Miracles of healing are, are almost never, if ever, ends unto themselves. The physical healing of the body is usually not the prime focus for the miracle. In John, miracles of healing, what are they? They're signs. What is a sign? A sign is something that points you to something else. The healing of Hezekiah, this second Solomon, this, this man uh, on a par with David, was this not an opportunity to call the nation to worship and to acknowledge that the God who had just routed the Assyrian army was the God who not only deals in numbers of, of hundreds of thousands, but the God who deals in the details of individual lives. What a moment here. And yet the chronicler says, he didn't do anything. He did nothing in return for the benefit he received, why? Because his heart was proud. Man. This would have been bad in any circumstances, but following the story that we've just seen, it's, it's embarrassing. Here's a king who confused God's mercy in his life with a sense that somehow God just couldn't get along without him. And that is a danger. The temptation of taking credit. Let's stay in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Look at, um, look at verse 26. Let's read, let's read this story. However, now this is a, a turn, okay? However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuable articles. Also storehouses for the produce of grain, wine, and oil, stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds for the flocks, he made cities for himself and acquired flocks and herds in abundance because God had given him very great wealth. It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did. 
even in the matter of the messengers of the rulers of Babylon who were sent to him to inquire about the wonder that had happened in the land, God left him alone only to test him so that he might know everything that was in his heart. Okay, here's what happens. He has a moment of pride. God meets with him apparently again. He repents. And it says something that we'll, we'll see fleshed out when we go back to 2 Kings. But there's a, there's a, a kind of uh, Easter egg here, a hint of something coming. It says, um, verse 26, uh, the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Okay, remember that because we'll come back to it. But I also want you to, to notice verse 31 when he mentions the matter of the messengers of the rulers of Babylon. Now, what's that about? Because we haven't seen Babylon in this story at all. We've only seen Assyria. Okay, well, here's the thing. Hezekiah is given this remarkable honor uh, bestowed to him by God, but God allowed him to be tested in that moment to see what was in his heart. Trials shape us because they reveal what needs to be dealt with in our hearts. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 20, because what we're going to see here is um, a display of sufficiency. Now, let me give you the, his, the history of this reference to, to Babylon. In the ancient world, in the days of Hezekiah, we know Assyria is the superpower. But there is an up-and-coming superpower on the horizon called Babylon. Now, there's a reference in, in, in 2 Kings. I, I don't remember this name. It's too long to remember, but let me see if I can find it. Um, hmm. I, I, I looked it up. It, the, the, it just says the king of Babylon. It's a historical reference. He, I can't remember his name, but the king of Babylon is, um, he has ambitions, Assyria is what stands between Babylon and superpower status, okay? If Babylon is going to be the alpha dog, something has to happen to Assyria. Well, the king deals with Sennacherib, and he leads Babylon to rebel against the Assyrian Empire. Sennacherib, in a different battle that we haven't covered in Scripture, Sennacherib goes and defeats the Babylonian army, and basically the king of Babylon escapes into exile. He, he sort of rules from exile a conquered kingdom until he gets word that there was a devastating blow to the Assyrian army by the god of a little nation called Judah, who were a nation led by a king by the name of Hezekiah. Judah is on one end of the Assyrian Empire. Babylon is on the other end of the Assyrian Empire. What we're going to see in, in the verses we're about to read is messengers from the king of Babylon will now come to Hezekiah, I think because the idea is if we can create an alliance against Assyria, we can foment rebellion on both ends of the empire and force Assyria into a two-front war, and maybe we can get this monolithic kingdom off the map. Babylon's got big ambitions. Okay, now here's the story. In, starting in verse 12 of 2 Kings 20. Oh, there, there's his name right there, Baradoc Baladin. At that time, Baradoc Baladin, a son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah because he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the balsam oil, the scented oil, the house of his armor, and everything that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Um, this Babylonian delegation shows up, they're seeking an alliance, and Hezekiah, probably flattered that this sizable empire that could be the next superpower, flattered that they're interested in him, he takes them on a tour. He rashly shows off all of his palace, his treasury, his armory, everything that he has, perhaps with a spirit, uh, perhaps presenting all of these things as uh, the power that stopped Assyria, and frankly, what he could bring to an alliance with Babylon. 
And what's he doing? By showing off all that he has as a king, he's failing to give credit to God. What is not mentioned in this passage? Here's this foreign delegation. They come bearing gifts. They want to negotiate the possibility of an alliance, and he takes them on a tour. Here's my armory. Here's all my weapons. Here's my stables with all my horses. Here's my palace. And here's everything. What did he not do? He didn't take them to the temple. He didn't tell them the story of the power of his God. Apparently, who got credit for the victory? Hezekiah. Do you see this up and down? What that tells me is that pride is not something that you deal with one time with a single prayer. The enemy has a way of getting us to believe our own press clippings. And that is always a dangerous place to be. Well, so here's what happens. Look at verse 14. Then Isaiah, Isaiah is always on the spot. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country, from Babylon. Isaiah, Isaiah said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, probably pretty proud of himself. They have seen everything that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when everything that is in your house and what your fathers have stored up to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Now, let's talk about this. There's a prophetic announcement here. Isaiah's question is answered really by Hezekiah uh, making another prideful boast. Yeah, I showed him everything. I wanted him to be impressed. But instead of, uh, instead of revealing God to the Babylonians, the king just showed them nothing more than they might have expected from any other pagan nation they could have visited with. If it's only about their weapons in the armory and their wealth in the treasury, how is Judah different from any of the other nations? How did Judah survive when all of the other nations didn't? We saw the recital of all the defeated nations when the Secretary of State of Assyria came and said, these, these nations all had gods and their gods didn't save them. What was the difference? Judah actually had a god that would save people. But he didn't tell the Babylonians about that. What was the result? Instead of walking away amazed at the god of Judah... They walked away like wolves leaving the sheep herd and said, there's some stuff there we need to get a hold of. They got some stuff in their armory. They got some stuff in their treasury. We need to keep this on our, uh, on our agenda. Isaiah issues a prophecy. The, the exile is not merely because of, of Hezekiah's pride. There's a lot more involved, but that's what he's prophesying here. Now, it's another hundred years before Babylon is a, a nation that can come and defeat Judah and carry them off into exile. But he says, your sons are going to be officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Who fulfills that prophecy? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The people of Judah would be carried off into exile by the very nation that Hezekiah is now sucking up to. Did he not remember that he tried to suck up to the king of Assyria? Gave him all of his gold? Tried to buy him off? What did that get him? Just got him a war with no gold. My point is, Hezekiah is a great king. But in his last days, he got lazy. And then look at verse 19. This verse stuns me. Isaiah has announced this coming judgment. But remember, it was in Chronicles that it wouldn't happen in the days of Hezekiah. Well, that's what he says here. The days are coming 
some of your sons will be carried off, blah, blah, blah. Verse 19, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought, is it not good if there will be peace and security in my day? In other words, there's an ominous prediction that's been stated. He accepts the inevitability of the judgment, but he's just glad that it'll be delayed until after he's gone. Really? If you walked up to me and said, this is not a good illustration, but it's the closest I can come because of what's dear to me. If you walked up to me and said, Evergreen um, is no longer serving a purpose. And God's going to allow the doors to be closed and the people will be scattered and, and it, won't, it won't survive as a church. But it won't happen until after you're gone. If my response is, well, okay, as long as, as, long as we're good while I'm here, what kind of response is that? That is apathy at cosmic proportions. Well, judgment's coming, but it's not going to hit me. You know, I see this occasionally. I think, I think that the end times preaching, I think the rapture, I think, I think we're given hints of these things in Scripture to keep us on task to keep us focused on, on what we've been called to do. All the way back into Paul's day, there were believers in the church in Thessalonica, and they'd quit their jobs, and they were just waiting for the second coming. They were just living off, they were sponging off of the church. And Paul had to write them and say, listen, here's the principle. If you don't work, what? You don't eat. Well, that's, that's what's going on here. There's no place in the life of, of a Jesus follower to ever say, well, you know, rapture's coming, so I'm just going to sit on a hill. I'm going to just bide my time. You know, Jesus is going to be here any day. We're not going to have to face any of this. You know what the danger of that is? One of these days, I think there are going to be some Christians that God's going to say, you're my child, and, and, and you're here I made, it, I made it possible for you to be here. Uh, there's, there's blood that, that, that covers your sin. But child, why did you come alone? Are we not here to stay on task? Listen, how do you know when it's time for you to retire from the faith? When you close your eyes and you open them up and you see Jesus, that's when it's time to retire. But not until then. Hezekiah, he retired too soon. Now let me show you how I know that for all of his greatness, this story doesn't end well. Verse 20, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he constructed the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah lay down with his fathers and his son Manasseh became king in his place. Okay, that's, that's, that sort of wraps it up. But remember how I said your rewards uh, continue to accumulate? Well, let me show you what happens after Hezekiah passes off the scene. First six verses of chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. Manasseh is the longest ruling king in the history of Judah. He is also a godless pagan, and he was the worst king in the nation's history. Verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord in accordance with the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he, now what did Hezekiah do? He tore down all the, all the, the high places that worshiped the false gods. Verse 3, Manasseh rebuilt the high places which his father Hezekiah had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah just as Ahab king of Israel had done. 
And he worshipped all the heavenly lights. That is, the sun, the moon, the stars. That's what the pagans did. And he served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. He built altars for all the heavenly lights in the two courtyards of the house of the Lord. He turned the temple of Yahweh into a shrine for Baal. Verse 6, And he made his son pass through the fire, interpreted signs, practiced divination, and used mediums and spiritists. He did great evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The last subpoint that I've given you in this outline, I've called it practical atheism. Hezekiah was a great king, but by any standard, sacred or secular, I mean, his achievements were considerable. Like I told you, the Jewish tradition is that he's buried next to David and Solomon, but when you examine his legacy, his reforms were just an island. An island between his pagan father before him and his even worse pagan son after him. He was one of the last brief moments of sunshine before the exile a hundred years down the road. Somewhere along the way, Hezekiah quit working toward cultural revival and spiritual awakening. And I can prove it because he failed to teach his own son to have faith in the Holy One of Israel. I don't care how old you are. You are not done until the generation of your children and the generation of your grandchildren, and if God gives you the grace, the generation of your great-grandchildren. You are not done until the faith is secured solidly in those who follow in your footsteps. Hezekiah, he's a great king. I, say, I, I said that I identify with him. It's because the greatest disaster I can imagine is to spend my life raising children, influencing grandchildren, leading a church, only to see it all collapse after I'm finished because I didn't do my job. Hezekiah started great. He finished okay, but he didn't finish where he should have finished because Israel, I mean Judah, ultimately wasn't that different and his own family wasn't different at all. So well, this is kind of a low note to finish this series on. Well, it's only a low note in the sense that if you take any slice of the entire history of redemption, you're going to find black marks. I mean, David, God, God honored David and, and loved him, but David had had some marks next to his name. Solomon. Solomon married foreign wives and, and, and Solomon, Solomon left behind a son who almost immediately split the kingdom because he didn't know how to lead. If you take any slice of the story of redemption, you could end on a low note and you could say, man, you know, we're, we're, we're following in the footsteps of idiots. Well, that just sets the bar right where we need it to be, probably. But here's what you do. You never zero in on these slivers of life because they are filled with black marks, because they're, they, they're, they're, they're done by, by imperfect people. But you step back and you put that sliver into its place in the, in the history of redemption, and then you look at all of this. And when you look at the big picture, 
from start to finish, God is going to take human history to the exact conclusion that he meant it to be all along. Did sin interrupt God's plan? You know, you have to be careful about that kind of language. But I will say this. Sin never ultimately frustrated God's plan. He's going to get us to the end that he set for himself when he started us in the beginning. Our job is to have as few black marks as possible and live the life we've been called to live until he decides it's time for us to retire. Father, thank you for the life of Hezekiah. Thank you for what we've seen here. His greatness inspires us. His weakness reminds us of our own. And Father, in that process, we simply acknowledge that uh, that there is not anyone in, in human history that you can't do without, but in your remarkable mercy and grace, you have privileged us to be a part of what you're accomplishing. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to walk in what's true. Help us to finish well. That's our desire, Lord. Thank you for giving us a fine start. But Lord, Give us the strength to stand against the evil one, to dig in our heels, to resist the devil, because we know that when we do that, he'll flee from us. Father, find here a people whose hearts are completely yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.